Welcome to another unlocked episode of the world famous award winning picture rock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find the back episodes and so much more at picturerockshow.com. This unlocked episode features my full conversation with John Dr. T. Tucker. John is a legend in hip hop music videos and has continued to evolve his career into narrative film now. Pass on 2 is his first venture into the scene and it's a memorable entree. In this full interview, we dive deeper into his time directing music videos and capturing an era and culture of Southern hip hop and how that helped him become the visual storyteller he is today. We also dig deeper into Pass on 2. If you're a listener that's never heard of Dr. Teeth, go Google him, catch up, and enjoy. If you have heard of him, you'll certainly get a kick out of this interview. Either way, it was a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy hearing from an experienced filmmaker. Since this is a bit lengthy, I'm going to get my usual end spill out of the way and let you know that you can find Picture Lock on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, and Periscope. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. You can download the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, and other places podcasts are downloaded. In fact, if you have one, tell your Amazon device, Alexa, play Picture Lock and TuneIn, and you've got me. Feel free to give the show a hearty review if you're enjoying it. We appreciate those five stars. Don't forget to check out the website, PictureLockShow.com, for movie reviews, news, and to subscribe to our newsletter to get a chance to win tickets for movie screenings in the DMV. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website, send me an email if you're enjoying the show, or give some feedback at PictureLockShow at gmail.com. Our music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. Don't forget to check out PictureLockPR.com for all your film publicity needs. Submit to the 2018 DC Black Film Festival. Call for entries are now open. And with that, let's hear the unlocked version of my conversation with John Dr. Teeth Tucker. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. And Pass on Two is a dark comedy in which social expectations meets willful stupidity that plays like an exhilarating gift. I mean, the best way to describe it, this film is Friday meets French New Wave. I have the director of the film on the line with me, John Dr. Teeth Tucker. John, welcome to Picture Lock. Ah, man, I'm so happy to to be uh, on your podcast, man. This is so dope. Yeah, you know, no, no, let, let me tell you, this is dope for me because, like, Back in the day, I'm watching, you know, Hip Hop Save My Life. Little did I know that, like, years from now, I'll be talking to you right now. So, you know, I guess it goes both ways, bro. <laughs> ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> so, listen. And hey, you uh, know what's funny? Go ahead. Oh, well, what's funny is that I'm finding out how many people really, you know, fans of the music video work. Because a lot of times, as a creative, you live inside of a bubble. And you see yourself as somebody trying to do something, right? Mm -hmm. And not someone that is accomplished in what you're doing. Because you're always personally trying to reach your levels. And so it's just really refreshing that when I meet people, they're like, oh, man, they call back some of my work and they tell me how much they really appreciate the, uh, the, the, the work that I put out there. So this is great. Yeah, most definitely. Well, John, the first question that I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Oh, my God. 
when I first fell in love with film, uh, and and actually I didn't know it, <laughs> was when I uh, was a kid and I would, on Saturday, would watch television all day. You wake up early and you watch the early morning cartoons. Right. And then in the evening they had, I grew up in Cincinnati, they had this thing called Creature Features, come on Channel 19, and you would watch all these old movies from the 50s and I used to watch a film called The Blob and it's when I saw <laughs> like Godzilla films and Boris Karloff films and I would just watch television all day not knowing that this was crafting me into a storyteller right no. not even knowing it would be my destiny yeah, exactly. You know, it's always fun to ask that question because I get so many different answers, um, but I can always relate to the filmmakers as, as they're talking or describing about when they first fell in love with film because it was the same thing with me. Like, me and my brother waking up Saturday mornings, you watch cartoons, and, you know, my brother would always play video games. I would watch TV, and, and like you said, it's like, you, you know, back then, like, <laughs> whatever came on, came on. It wasn't DVR. So, like, you know, you would have to either VHS <laughs> record it mm -hmm. and then yep. you watch that over <laughs> and over, you know. Last Dragon was one of those things. All, all kinds of stuff. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel you on that one. Um, if you could, for the audience, let's just get a little history lesson. Like, how did you go from uh, that kid that was watching cartoons and watching Boris Karloff films uh, into, like, the actual industry? Wow. Well, uh, the short version, uh, I was in a music group. People don't know that I'm, I'm a musician. Uh, when I started college, I was uh, a vocal major, and I had a singing group, and we would sing, and this was, like, mid-'90s, early-'90s, and... Um, we were singing and we were trying to be that next R&B group, that next Jodeci. And uh, when we would put our demos together, everything based on the demo was based off of cassette tape, handing your cassette to an executive, to a record guy. And at that point, visual medium was not popular because it wasn't accessible to a lot of people. You, you, you had a camcorder, but nobody had editing material. Nobody had Final Cut on their computers and people didn't have computers. They barely had, actually they really didn't have cell phones unless you really had a lot of money. <laughs> right. And so at the university, they had a communication department and the communication department had cameras and, and editing equipment. And so I was like, I can make my demos better if I record our showcases and then cut them up and make that like an extra feature to what we do. And I got bit by the bug, man. I was, I was um, shooting our stuff, and then I would take it. I would go and borrow four cameras from the the, uh, the communication department. I would unman them, set them up, put them on manual on tripods. We would perform. Then I would take those tapes, go back, learn how to edit. It was just tape to tape, so it was just cuts. <laughs> and then I put this demo together. And I, I just fell in love with that whole medium and actually found my calling because when the group fell apart, um, I, I, I had this love now for, for, for visual mediums. And never knowing that in that interim, 
when we would sing and when we would produce music, I always saw images and colors. It's just, I think it was a natural progression. It's funny how the uh, student is starting to, you know, become the Jedi. <laughs> and it's just a natural, you know what I mean? Like a natural calling right. <laughs> that you run into Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> and then find out Vader's your father, right? <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened for me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's Picture Lock. Yeah. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the man that has a few Jedi mind tricks of his own. It's John <laughs> Dr. T. Tucker, the director of Pass on 2. Man, yeah, I, I love that. I love that story, uh, John. But just because, uh, like you said, it, even in the beginning, it's like I, what I'm what I'm really finding as I get older in life. You know, almost about to hit thirty five. Is that like a lot of people? It's kind of like it's always been there. Like whatever you're passionate about, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you kind of have gravitated towards it. But you, you're not knowing that, like when you're young, like that age, that you're picking up those skills that can help you. Um, with what you're passionate about. So that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Who knew all them butt whoopers I took for sneaking <laughs> and watching TV, it would pay for this house on me. Who knew? Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I can still see clearly um, one night when my dad had sent me upstairs but it the Cosby show was on and you know like the Cosby yeah. show like you can't you couldn't miss the Cosby show in a different world and i remember sneaking to like where the stairwell like starts to open up to like downstairs and i would just like peek, poke my head yeah dude i i totally can relate to you on that <laughs> absolutely all right, so let's kind of dig into your music video work for a bit. So, uh, you know, as I had said, Hip Hop Saved My Life, Ice Cream Paint Job, Rock Your Hips, They Don't Know, Mental Exorcism, and more. Like, you've you've stated uh, that you try to shoot the truth in your videos. So if you could talk yeah. about that era and the mark that you made in hip hop um, in, in terms of, like, you know, Dirty South uh, and especially H-Town. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Uh, I used to, when I got in the business, my first uh, job was at BET, and I got blessed to be able to work on Rap City before it came Rap City The Basement. And I learned a lot from the senior producer at the time, Craig Henry, about hip-hop and the four elements of hip-hop and the culture of hip hop before I just listened to hip hop, but I didn't understand the culture. Uh, and so in understanding the culture and then getting to travel around and meeting different artists in their cities and hanging out with the artists and doing stuff with the artists, I started to understand that there's a story to every artist that is contributing to the culture that's contributing the sound to the culture. We were in Louisiana, and at that time, Master P and No Limit was hot. There was a sound that they were projecting. You know, we go back to the Bronx and uh, uh, listening to uh, the early hip-hop, Grandmaster Flash, you know, uh, Cool Herc uh, on the wheels, and the music that they were playing was the sound of New York, and it evolved all the way into my favorite, which is Biggie. But there was a sound there that was of New York. So if you go through these regions and then you go into the South and you hear Outkast at that time, there was a sound that was that was true to a story that they were telling. And so with that, I started to understand that one, 
again, being a musician and two, not knowing that I was a storyteller, uh, I would see these visuals and hear their music. And then when we see the video, we were a video driven show. When you would see the video, sometimes you'd be disappointed because the, the visuals didn't match the energy of the, of the music. And so what I did was, uh, for Houston, there was an artist named Big Mo. And, um, I knew I always wanted to be a music video director, not really wanted to be, uh, a, a movie director. And while I was in college, because of my link to music, I would study Hype Williams and I would study Paul Hunter, you know, and I would study these guys and I was just like, man, I want to do what they're doing. And when I became on a video show through, uh, uh, BET and we would watch these videos, I always said if I got my shot, I would do it this way. And so I got the chance pushing Little X to a guy um, in Houston uh, who had an artist named Big Mo. And um, I tried to get them to hire Little X and Little X said he would do the video if he, he listened to the music uh, to produce their first single. And uh, I guess I impressed him so much because I actually really wanted to do it, but I had never shot a video before. And, again, being humble, I wasn't going to really push myself to do it. And so I think I impressed D-Rex because he just said that was a, the CEO of the label. He was like, no, nah, I'm going to go with you. And I was like, me? Really? <laughs> so right. I couldn't believe it because uh -huh. I really wasn't pushing that. But he said, yeah, I'm going to go with you. And so we shot a video my first video was a single called Man, and it did really great in this region, in Houston, Louisiana, Oklahoma. I mean, Texas, uh, uh, Oklahoma, Louisiana uh, region. And so they came back with a second single a couple of years later, and they had a major deal on priority, and they didn't go with me. They went, the label, of course, was forcing uh, uh, another cat on them, and they did this video called purple stuff and if you know anything about big mo big mo was a big dude and the music in houston was really different um it was it was houston it was h-town style and so uh they did a video for purple stuff and the label had the video was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And they had little small, short people, I don't know the correct term, but uh, uh, small people running around with the Willy Wonka look, shoot, spitting fire, and Big Moe's Big Butt out there singing with a purple uh, hat on. Uh, uh, and he looked like a fool. And the whole song <laughs> looked like a fool. And it was just really whack. And it presented, that was the first presentation of that music mm. that people here take very serious right, right. to the world and it flopped. You never take a big two. Like, Purple Stuff was really about the drug culture. It was about syrup. Yeah, that's some, some gangster shit. You know what I mean? Right. The cats here in, in the hood, that's, that's, that's their, 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 that was their drug of choice in a sense, you know? And it just took, I know they were trying to soften it but it killed his image. And I said, if I ever get a chance to shoot for them, I would shoot the culture and what it was about. And that's how Steel Tipping came. 
Phil Tiffin was a school culture, DJ school culture. And that was why I had Michael Watts in the middle of the hood, like the Pied Piper, spinning the turntable as the, the girl from the strip club is slow winding in front of him and the camera's moving in and out. It's poetry. And then their car culture, uh, elbows in, in 84 is, is the, 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 the rims and tires that they, uh, cars that they drive. Uh, 84s is the elbows that is uh, to the Cadillac Baritz 84, 1984. And that was the car choice. That was like, that's having the, the Mercedes or having the, uh, the Bugatti. You got an 84 to this day, you got something special. It's a head turner. And then they do something that's called swinging, a boss hogging. And people don't know that. You know, right. and so all of these things I put into that visual to still tipping and it became a mega success. And so when I say I shoot the truth, I tell the true stories, I tell I try to embody spiritually what is of the music, what is of your culture, what is of your story and place these things into the visuals that I that I produce. Yeah, you know, um, I almost feel like I'm I'm listening to College Dropout and listening to Last Call right now. <laughs> I, I, I love uh, getting that backstory. Um, but one yeah. one thing that I was thinking about um, is, you know, music is a universal language, right? And um, no matter where you are, you 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 understand and you can feel an artist uh, and their expression within music, right? Mm -hmm. And then you take film, mm -hmm. which I feel is another universal language because, you know, no matter what, like you can watch a French film and you understand what the characters are going through. So when you think mm -hmm. about music videos, right? You're you're basically mm -hmm. mixing the best of both worlds because, like you said, you're taking the music from um, Swisher House and, and, and all those guys and, and mm -hmm. all that, uh, you know, it meant to their culture. And then you're matching that with uh, a visual image. So <clears throat> if you right. could talk a little bit about, you know, what it, what it took to kind of tell short, concise stories in music videos and like how that has pre prepared you for longer form storytelling and film. Well, music videos is where I actually cut my teeth. Uh, <laughs> no pun. <laughs> but uh, it's where I cut my teeth. It's where I had some of my major failures and some of my major successes. Uh, and in telling the story, I came into it as a storyteller, again, not knowing what that was. Um, my producer will always say, he just wants to tell stories. He wants to tell stories. And I didn't understand and what the music video is about the performance. You can put the story in there, but what the label wants to see is their artist looking like a star and performing and engaging and bringing people into the music. Um, and what it allowed me to do is learn how to tell a story uh, through music video. The cool thing about music video is that they, at that time, you would have these huge budgets of a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, a million dollars to uh, produce uh, some work on film with seasoned professionals, 
seasoned uh, cinematographers and editors and me being the weak link in the group. <laughs> and so wow. I learned how to, how to use lenses and use the lenses to tell the story adequately because a lot of people don't know how to use them lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned how to set up my shot and then I learned how to dress everything in the shot and light and compose within the shot. Um, a lot of people don't know that. They do a lot of point and shoot. And I learned to edit to shoot because we only had so many cans of film. I just couldn't shoot everything. So I had to come in prepared. That's another thing. Uh, I like to say when preparation meets opportunity. And so I learned how to prepare uh, and know exactly what I want and not going in and shooting a bunch of stuff and then going back and figuring it out later. Uh, it extremely prepared me for the journey that I'm taking now. So I, I owe that to music video. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it does. You know, yeah. it's kind of interesting because um, one, of, one of the things in studying film, I feel like the, the greats, it, it's much like, like hip-hop, right? So, like, uh, mm-hmm. Biggie didn't write, you know, his rhymes down. Jay-Z doesn't write his stuff out because it's all in mm-hmm. his head. And in the same way, it's like after after you practice and you put in your hours, like everything is in your head. So what you just said makes total sense, man. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you learn because a lot of sets you back then you had to uh, get an art director and you had to tell the art director what you wanted, how you wanted to design. You had stylists and you didn't let the stylists just dress your talent. You had to tell them what you wanted, what colors you were using. Um, and you wanted to use colors that was going to, you know, accent the set or make things pop for you or, or make things subtle, however your vision was, you were in command of a total visual production and you were responsible for it. And if, if it flopped, it was totally your fault. And if you didn't utilize some of these things, it would be totally your fault. And so I, it'd be funny because we would have these big old productions and I never, kind of did the glam thing like hey yeah dr teeth kissed the ring you know type of thing <laughs> like, right. more set. i never was that guy because and this is a true story every day before a shoot and it's a lot going on there's a lot of things components going when you pull up in the, well, in the morning when they pick you up from the hotel in the van and everybody's left before you and I'm like one of the last ones they're picking up from the hotel and I got my shot list in my little bag and I come downstairs, hop in the van and we're riding out. I got bubble gut <laughs> <laughs> and I roll in on set <laughs> and there's production trucks up and down the street and they're running cable and there's grown ass men out there humping and they're all there because of this idea that I wrote and put on paper and so they're pulling in the set and I'm terrified because I'm thinking, oh my God, today's the day they're gonna figure out I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you, and it wasn't even a thing, you get nervous. But I start watching the master master classes and all the directors from Scorsese to uh Ron Howard to uh uh, Spielberg, when I listen to some of their things, they say, you know, if you don't get nervous uh, before a shoot, if you don't get nervous about what you're doing, uh, then you're in the wrong business. And I said, oh, God. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, <just, laughs> I just thought I was really 
messing things up, man. Like, right. why am I going to upset? And I'm scared. I mean, this is this is what I do. No, because man. it matters. Yeah. No, no, no. So, 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 I, okay. So let let's because because I do want to get into Poisson too, but um, I think this is a great point, and this is something that like in talking to a bunch of filmmakers, right? So, um, I was talking to uh, Victoria Negri. She's the director of Gold Star, and um, Robert Vaughn, uh, you know, starred in in the film. She was 27 at the time, and you know, Robert Vaughn mm-hmm. is like you know famous actor, everything. Um, but she's not only directing him, but acting alongside him. And one of the things that she said that has stuck with me since was, um, you know, uh, she was she was at home and she she just realized like, nah, he signed on to do this. He believes in the project. He obviously must have believed in me, and then that giving her the confidence and the the boost to go forward and make it happen. Um, so so mm-hmm. similarly, I want to ask you like, in those bubblegut moments, like, what do you hold on to? that makes you say, you know what, I got this. Because at, at some point, you, you, yeah, you're riding over to set, and it's like, oh, yeah. what in the world? But then when you step out, it's like, all right, you flip on. It's always the first shot. It's how you tell if you're going to have a good day or not. Uh, once you get on the bike and you're shaking and it's wobbly, <laughs> and after a while you start hitting a couple corners and you start, you settle in, and you got a smooth ride. It's almost like a race, and you're up front, and you can control your breathing and you're, you're pushing. You don't feel anything anymore. You don't exist. You are now a slave, like slave to the rhythm. You're just moving. You're slave to the project. Uh, everything that drove you into outputting that treatment, that concept, you are now 100% uh, committed and entranced in that. And you don't see anything going on. I get locked in. So it's the first shot, you know, and we always like to kind of start with a performance shot uh, and get the artist going and just get everybody locked in. And then you just kind of move forward, you know. Um, Sometimes things go shaky. So you don't want to start with something that's difficult uh, because you'll never – well, I don't – it will be hard for me to then lock in because now I'm nervous out <laughs> so we just kind of start with performances or uh, a, a, a cool shot and then we'll get into the uh, to the work you get locked in because it's a love man this is something that drives you and the fears go away yeah no it, go away. it totally makes sense you know um, one of the things that I love from the movie Creed um, was when uh, oh, I love that movie yeah when uh, Michael V. Jordan his character is like man, take the gloves off take the gloves off and they're like why why were you about to go out and he's like man I got I got poop you know whatever and uh, yeah. and so <laughs> that thing is hilarious but the thing was this like uh, behind the scenes right um, Ryan Coogler said the reason that they put he put that scene in there is because he said um, it always feels like he was like growing up playing football and everything. He was like, it always feels like before he had to perform or do something big, like he had to go to the restroom, like number two, right? Yeah. So, so, it, yeah. so that universal truth of like just the bubble guts before a big performance. I, I think in some ways, it allows you to know like you are really in tune to what you're doing because like mm-hmm. you really want to get it right. Because 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 I could go yep. to like a meeting. And like this is a this is a decently big meeting, but like you don't got bubble guts. But when there's something that like you know, you know, like you're, you're shooting a video or shooting a film or whatever, 
like total bubble guts, <laughs> going out on concert, yeah. whatever the case may be. It's Picture Lock. I'm your yeah. host, Kevin Sampson, and uh, I'm talking with uh, the director of Pass on Two, John Dr. Teeth Tucker. Uh, this has been a great conversation. John, let's go ahead and get into Pass on Two. If you could, uh, in your own words, what's the film all about? Well, the film, <laughs> it's an eclectic piece of work. Um, <laughs> it's eclectic. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's rooted in the foundation of French New Wave novella uh filmmaking. Uh, it's about a guy whose name, his name is Henry. He's a slacker. Uh, he doesn't care about anybody or anything. And he's a user. He's, I had a couple friends. We would go to the movies, show up at the movies. We're paying. And he doesn't have money. So we got to pay for him. <laughs> you know, because right. there's no going back. Right. Movie starting, can't leave him out. He's that guy. <laughs> and so uh, he uses his friends. They go, they hit the strip club. They're paying for him soon to get in. They're paying for his dances. You know, if they go out to eat, they're paying for that. And so he uses people. He's living off of his uh, grandfather's Social Security. His grandfather's dead. Uh, and he don't care. Uh, he uses women. And... Uh, he, he is the kind of, he's kind of a kid, a guy that needs to grow up. Well, he's the type of dude that when you see coming, it's like, oh, here comes that guy. Right. <laughs> and so he gets drunk off of his friend's bottle of Cavassier. When he wakes up, he speaks pure, eloquent French. And so the story transfers into a four by three picture, black and white. French New Wave style of film. Uh, this cat is speaking French. He's still a still mean, still rude. But the people in the neighborhood who hate to see him coming, they think now, yo, he's this cat's saying something provocative because <laughs> it's in French. And so they don't know what he's saying, but they think what he's saying is really cool. And so he starts to find favor with them. And so there's a vagrant through regentrification, that man named Sir Henry uh, that Leon Lamar is playing, and uh, he is being evacuated out of his tent city. And so when Henry walks up on the scene and he's saying something in French, they think, oh, shoot, this dude can go in here and talk to him. He, he must be some type of <laughs> uh, 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 guy that can go in here and, and coerce this, this brother out. Well, when he goes to speak with Sir Rodney, Sir Rodney, of course, because he has layers and textures of life, he knows how to speak French, too. So he starts speaking back to him in French, and he starts to school Henry on, you can't desecrate this language. This is language of, language of love as if it's from God's mouth to women's ears. Mm -hmm. And you can't be calling women and hoes in this language. That ain't the way. And so Henry, for the first time in his life, actually started to listen and learn. And now that he has this, he knows he has to, this thing where he has to make a change or can make a change. Kind of like you're not ignorant anymore and you know better because you're being schooled. Well, he meets this beautiful woman. Of course, the woman is way out of his league. Uh, and because he speaks French, uh, he gets the opportunity to make a date with her. And this is changes his world. 
And then changing his world, he starts to dream about uh, the first date that he's going to have with this beautiful woman. And so when he wakes up and gets ready to get ready for the date and speaks in the mirror for the first time, he realizes he has lost his ability to speak French. <laughs> All right, John. So, <laughs> so I'm going to hop in right there so that the audience can uh, have something to, to look forward to when they see the film. Okay. But I, I do want to kind of camp out a little bit in, in the film um, because I, I think language is one of the keys in the f- film, whether they're speaking English, French, or even the subtitles on screen at times, like it's English subtitles versus French subtitles and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about how um, language is almost like another character in the film? Yes, language is, it is another character in the film. It's a, it's a big character. Actually, I think it should be uh, credited <laughs> as a starring character. And so many times that we uh, look at people for the, the, the color of their skin uh, and assume that because you are a certain color that you're official and because you speak a certain way, you're official. And uh, because you carry yourself in a certain way that you, you're better, when I say official, that you're better than others, when at the end of the day we're all human mm-hmm. and we all do humanistic acts and we all have rights and we all have wrongs. And just because you deem someone to be better by how they look, they could be the worst person you ever met, you know? And so we kind of play with that, those stereotypes in the film. The film initially starts almost like a B flick. The the language is harsh. It's very ignorant because in my mind and the writer's mind, uh, uh, guy, the guy that wrote the Marcus uh, Guillory, um, we wanted you to not see that this guy is capable of transforming from a scummy, slummy, uh, negative-speaking, cussing guy to a, 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 a guy who could then start to articulate in, in French. And then to complement the story, the, all the uh, sensibilities of French New Wave style is then even more accented throughout that portion of the film, you know, and so he has to make a he has to figure out what's his path. Is he gonna change? Is he gonna sacrifice himself for something? Is he gonna stand up for something? You know, and these are the things that he has to discover along his, his journey. Right. Um, you know, so in some ways when I was watching it, I was thinking, man, this is like a hood uh, Scrooge or It's a Wonderful Life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is definitely mm-hmm. yep. something that's fresh in terms of, you know, instead of like an angel come in or whatever, like it's like he starts speaking another language and how um, that kind of puts him in isolation. Um, much like some of the women that like, you know, he's been d- doing dirty uh, within his, his life. Um, but if you could, I wanted to talk... The women in the film are like hilarious. They they are um some of the stars like the uh the news reporter um it, with the UBN like they they just deliver like some hilarious lines um but they feel <laughs> yeah. like fully realized characters. Now, I, I do want you to talk about the women real quick, but I got to ask UBN uh was that a, a little shout out to little brother of the minstrel show? How did you know <laughs> Oh, man, dude, I saw. I said, "What? You black? This is that work?" 
that that is what's up, man. I thought so. I thought so. Oh Guess man. What? Okay, this is funny. Now, if you look on my Instagram, I got a picture with Rapper Pooh. Rapper Pooh is a good friend of mine, and I always beg him for a little brother reunion. And so, please beg for that, man. I, please beg for that. Oh, I, I keep, but he keeps saying it ain't gonna happen. But I could, you know, a brother can dream. <laughs> right. So I sent him the trailer, and he was like, "Oh, this is nice," but he didn't catch the UBN part. He wow. didn't see it. So I, I've been meaning to screenshot and say, yo, man, you missed something in this. You didn't watch. Right, <laughs> right. Very important. <laughs> man. A throwback to little brother. Right. And when she said it in juxtaposition with, um, what, what's the, I forgot the show that the um white uh, woman was on, but like, I was just like, wait, man, <laughs> especially knowing your history, I was like, oh, I love that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yes, if, yes, if you yes. could talk a little bit about uh, the women in the film and just how, like, honestly, because you're showing a, a man that, a flawed man that, in some ways, is like a baby boy character, right? And so, really, uh-huh, he's weak. Uh-huh. He's not. He's not the strong mm-hmm. bravado persona that he uh, exhibits. But the women are actually the ones that are strong. So, if you could just talk a little Absolutely. bit about the the women that you do have in the film. Well, I first want to say that uh, uh, Latoya Edwards plays a girl named Keisha. I think she stole the uh, the show. Uh, Keisha um, is the round-the-way girl but deserves better. I mean, she's kind of settling for Henry, uh, and he's really piling on her. You know, he's really crapping on her. And she's trying to hang in there with him, uh, but she's more established than than actually he is. She's driving a beautiful Cadillac, and you know she's got her own situation. And um, he's really uh, <laughs> dumping on her, but her comedy timing is so good. Yeah, yeah. That she carries the film. I mean, she really plays the round the way girl. <laughs> really well. And here's the funny thing. Um, I'm friends with Tiffany Haddish and I asked Tiffany to play that role. This was before um her breakout with uh a girls trip. Mm. And um I asked Tiffany to play the role, so Tiffany was gonna come down and she's gonna play the role, but I just felt I knew that this was my first joint. Um I didn't when because Tiffany and I were friends and I just didn't want to bring her down and then we trying to figure things out and I'm holding her up and I just felt weird. So I just didn't even push that and I found Toya and Toya, I say all that to say that Toya did such a great job that um, she really helped the film in the ways that Tiffany could have helped, but she did just as good, if not better. And so I'm really proud, proud of her. And then uh, Kena Dancy is uh, the one who played the the, uh, reporter. She actually just blew up on the television show on TV One. They got a morning talk show. I don't know the name of it. Uh, But she's on that show. And so she played the uh, reporter. And she played it kind of straight but kind of sarcastically. And right. <laughs> she killed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
there's some things in there when she nailed a couple lines that was just just really dope. It's and so um it, last Oh, great. No, I was going to say, it's laugh out loud funny. Like, it just, you know, like, I, and I think that's part of the whole film, and, and especially with having the French uh, New Wave vibe, because, like, it's punchy at times. And even the humor yeah. sometimes is so raw and uh, and, and not in, like, a crude so way, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, like, raw and just punchy, and, like, like these people are just real. Um, so it's, it, it is definitely... Hilarious, um, and unfortunately, we're gonna have to wrap things up in a second here. Um, but I did want to oh, go to mention one more person. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to leave her out, but one of the ladies was uh, Javicia Leslie, who played the love interest, and she's very professional and very talented, and so it just made it a really great, great cast. Yeah, man, I, I definitely think that um, it's something. It's something special um, that we don't see uh very often so i definitely appreciate what you all did um just uh in terms of putting into this film um if you could like let the audience know uh it's on the film festival circuit right now but how can they follow you follow the film etc all right so you can follow me uh on instagram at director dr teeth you actually can follow the film uh on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It's all the same. It's POS on two, uh, which is spelled P-A-S-H-O-N-T-E-U-X in French translation. I mean, shameful not. So P-A-S-H-O-N-T-E-U-X. And um, you can follow us there on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest uh, and Twitter. And you can get more information. We also have a, a website, which is www.possumtux.com, and you can see the trailer and get more information. Because the brother that plays the lead, Travis uh, LeBranch, never spoke French. He learned it. He took the lessons in three months, and he nailed the role. I just think it's a great role of transformation for an actor to play this type of dark comedy presented in the, you know, in, in the urban, uh, urban Atlanta, Georgia, and not know French and learn French and, and be able to nail this role. It's, it, we, we did a lot of preparation for it. You know, I'm so glad that you had brought that up because that was one of the questions I forgot to ask because um, I was wondering if he spoke French prior or not. So man, that, yeah, as you said, hats off to him. Um, it's such a such a great film, folks. You definitely want to check uh, check it out. Um, follow them on the website, Instagram, etc. Uh, director of Passant Two, John Doctor T Tucker. Man, appreciate you coming yeah. on Picture Lot. Thank you for having Thank you for having me, man. This is the first interview that I've done as uh, for the film and uh, in this way as a as a director of films. Now, nice. So yes, that's what's up. <laughs> What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there 
creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started PictureLog PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLockPR, finally, a partner as passionate as you.